Hey, it's Keith Miller. Welcome back to The Soul of Life. Hope you're having a great summer. I'm getting ready to start a new season, season five of The Soul of Life, September 1st. So stay tuned. In the meantime, I want to show you one of my favorite episodes, a throwback to season two with John Mather, Nobel Prize winner and the senior science director of the James Webb Space Telescope at NASA. Enjoy. This is Deirdre Wallach, mother of free solo climber, Alex Honnold, and you're listening to The Soul of Life. We would sure like to know if there's another place like Earth out there. Dr. John Mather won the Nobel Prize by looking back in time. The farthest you can see back in time with your own eyes is usually the Andromeda Nebula. John Mather and a collaborator, in fact, shared the Nobel Prize in Physics in 2006 for their work on NASA's Cosmic Background Explorer mission, known as COBE, in the 1970s, which confirmed to an incredibly high accuracy that the universe is filled with remnants of microwave radiation left over from the Big Bang. Rest assured, this has nothing to do with the microwave in your kitchen, so let me explain a little bit. The so-called cosmic microwave background radiation, sometimes referred to simply as CMBR, was discovered totally by accident in 1964. And yes, this is around the same time when kitchen microwaves were showing up, so there you have a connection to my all-time favorite appliance. But these microwaves were found by two radio astronomers at Bell Laboratories. They were working on a way to get rid of noise being picked up by a telecom satellite and were convinced it was caused by a bunch of pigeons roosting on a ground antenna. No kidding. They tried everything to get rid of this noise, but they just moved on because they couldn't get rid of that noise. Their measurements were filed away in an obscure journal since they didn't know they had just stumbled onto what some have called the biggest discovery in human history. Then a few other scientists, for different reasons, ran into the same mysterious static bringing fame to those two radio astronomers, Wilson and Penzias, who went on to get their Nobel Prize in 1978 for what is now thought of as their discovery of this very first light in the universe. To a non-scientist like me, I have to admit how easy it can be for people to wonder how in the heck such an incomprehensibly imaginative theory like the Big Bang, the British slang for, well, releasing creative energy of a different kind, how it could ever be proven or disproven by someone like John Mather, who I speak to today in The Soul of Life. I felt the same way for my earlier episode about Albert Einstein's wacky theory of gravity. How could that be proven? But mathematics is imaginative as much as it is logical. You'll hear Dr. Mather and I talk about this, but I also encourage you to listen to Season 1, Episode 7 of The Soul of Life to hear science writer Ron Cowan, author of Einstein's Century, explain it much better than me. Proving the Big Bang might seem equally like some conspiracy theory, just far out there crazy talk until you read about the methodology, these extraordinarily redundant and actually pretty boring mathematical breadcrumbs that were being reproduced by other highly competitive scientists who often try as hard as they can to disprove one another. They all led to the same conclusion. Our entire world, our universe, as we know it, was once an inconceivably small speck that rapidly expanded outward and is still expanding and accelerating, much to everybody's surprise. 
And whatever you want to do with that fact, however it fits or doesn't fit into the way you like to think of our existence, the scientists like John Mather don't really care. Well, to tell the truth, um, I don't spend much time speculating about those answers. Uh, I think I'm going to work as hard as I can to get data. But they do care about that noise on the microwave spectrum the cosmic background radiation. This noise that they had originally thought was from pigeon crap told the story of the creation of our universe. You can test the theory so well that you can derive many more numbers about the expanding universe. We have now been able to do that uh, because of these uh, little speckles on the map. You can uh, learn so much we never guessed would be possible. I was really so privileged to talk to John Mather himself author of The Very First Light, Nobel Laureate, and senior astrophysicist in NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland, just down the road from where I live. Dr. Mather just so happens to also be the senior project scientist on the James Webb Space Telescope, due for launch this October. Since I'm a science nerd, sort of, and an astronomy fan, this was especially cool for me since I got to take my son on a tour of one of my friend's labs at Goddard, and we got to see where they were working on the James Webb when it visited there a few years ago. So to me, this was like at the same level of getting a behind-the-scenes tour of Fenway Park. It's just one of those things you'll never forget. The James Webb is the largest and most powerful space telescope ever built. If you were uh, one square centimeter, uh, the size of a bumblebee, hovering out there uh, in deep space, uh, about the distance of the moon away from Earth, we'd be able to see you. Something that's this powerful um, and gets such a sharp image is surely going to give us a surprise. We just don't know what it's going to be. We talk about how captivated people were when the Hubble Space Telescope stunned the world with dazzlingly beautiful details of distant galaxies, how citizen astronomers so fell in love with this scientific instrument that it was able to get funding for repairs and exceeded its expected life. The James Webb is expected to bring us even more emotionally riveting images and discoveries about our place in the universe. We can see through those beautiful glowing clouds of gas and dust that people love to look at and see inside. So we know stars are being born today inside those beautiful clouds. And astronomers say, I wish I could see in. Uh, the infrared capability lets you see in. We talk about Dr. Mather's long and distinguished career at NASA, where he was during the Challenger accident, and what he calls the performance art of flying a machine a million miles from Earth, unfolding its origami sunshield and getting it to work. Uh, when you're standing out there at the rocket launch site waiting for your project to go up into space and you say, oh, well, you know, all of us have put our lives into this thing and, and there it is sitting on top of hundreds of thousands of pounds of explosive material. Welcome to season two of The Soul of Life. I'm Keith Miller and this is Gazing Through Time.
There was no definition of the mind that anybody had. I'm Keith Miller. That's really weird. Can we swear on this? Something you hear at a swing party. <laughs> Something that sounds that's... fun. We don't treat trauma. We treat the imprint of traumatic experience. I stood on top of the Olympic podium, very incomplete, not happy, and never ever thinking that I was good enough. Donald watched his older brother be destroyed that way, so he had to exile all the sensitive parts of him. Free soloing is climbing without ropes. Alex was born for climbing. Cannabis use disorder is real. There's no question about it. The, the broccoli growers of America are livid every time that they listen to this part of your podcast. What happens before sex? What happens during sex? What happens after sex? Compassion is contagious. We've got to have cake. Oh my God, I totally am bisexual and that's where I gotta be. He's incredibly successful by just talking shit about people's fried rice. This is the soul of life. My guest today is Dr. John Mather. He's a senior astrophysicist in the Observational Cosmology Laboratory located at NASA's Goddard Flight Space, Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. He's also the senior project scientist on the James Webb Space Telescope, which will be the largest, most powerful, and complex space telescope ever built and launched into space. It will fundamentally alter our understanding of the universe. Dr. Mather was winner of the 2006 Nobel Prize for Physics with George Smoot for their work in the Cosmic Background Explorer mission in the mid-1970s to measure the heat radiation from the Big Bang. Mather and his team measured this very faint radio noise that astronomers had theorized could only come from the most distant events at the beginning of time as we know it, and their measurements confirmed the Big Bang theory to an extraordinary accuracy. In 2007, Mather was listed among Time's 100 Most Influential People in the World. He's the author of many publications, including his book, The Very First Light. It's my distinct privilege to welcome Dr. Mather. Hi, Dr. Mather. How are you? Fine, thank you. Glad to talk with you. Great. Well, I, I'm interested in so many things um, to, to speak with you about. You know, my son and I had the privilege of uh, visiting Goddard a few years ago when uh, when the James Webb Space Telescope was visiting there, and we got a, a peek into the window. So we're we're big fans of the space program and also of the James Webb, and it's exciting to speak to you about this. We'll talk about that in a little bit. My my first question for you is if you can maybe explain for for me and my listeners what is cosmic microwave background radiation. Why have some people thought of this as perhaps the most important scientific discovery in human history? Well, my goodness, uh, that's a big question. So back in 1929, uh, Edwin Hubble drew us a graph, the first one we ever had, that showed that distant galaxies are running away from us very fast. So a galaxy, as you know, is something like 100 billion stars orbiting around a common center held together by gravity. And uh, it was completely shocking then that we was, saw that the distant galaxies are running away. So the uh, even more shocking thing was that there was a trend, that the farther away they are, the faster they're going. So he made this graph, and you could see it. So divide the distance by the speed of motion, you get the age of the universe. That was the first time we ever had a concept of an age of the universe with a number. So uh, we've been using that idea for a long time. It doesn't take too much to say, well, if it's expanding now, what was it like back then? It probably was very compressed and very hot. So if that was true, then the heat radiation that existed then should still fill the universe. It should just be, be a little cooler. So uh, it was predicted back in 1948 that this radiation must exist, and we even knew about the right temperature. So it was finally discovered in 1965 
uh, by two people, Penzias and Wilson, who got their Nobel Prize for the discovery. And then uh, in our project with the Cosmic Background Explorer satellite, we measured it much, much, much more precisely. And so there was no escaping the idea that this came from the Big Bang itself. Right, right. And, and just the idea of, of when we see light, we, I mean, all of us can look up into the sky and when we're seeing the stars, we are in fact looking back in time. Is that right? Even looking at our hand, there may be a fraction of a nanosecond uh, delay between what we're actually seeing and what gets in and what we see. Is, is that the idea yes, of seeing the, back in time? Yes, that's absolutely right. Uh, the farthest you can see back in time with your own eyes is usually the Andromeda Nebula which is a, a few million light years away. So you're seeing a few million years back in time. Uh, of course, with the telescopes, you can see much, much, much farther back in time. And the uh, curious thing for astronomers is if you look far enough back in time, things start to look different. And not only are they far away, but they're different. And so it says, well, you could really learn the history of the universe by looking at galaxies that are very far away. That would be fascinating and different. So we've been doing that. It's really amazing to to have this window into uh, the, these faraway places, which really are windows into ourself. I suppose you could say, going looking back in time, we have the the Earth's record of history. And, and I spoke with a geologist on on this show um, a couple months ago, and that have had similar conversations about the idea of long time and understanding our place in time. Um, your work on on Kobe. Um, with George Smoot and over, I think, 1,600 engineers, a large team of people um, and scientists uh, led to your receiving the Nobel Prize in 2006. Maybe I wonder if you could share some of the memorable moments from that project. It's 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 a long story, and I encourage listeners to read about it in, in your book, The First Light. Sure. Uh, there's some pretty amazing events that occurred. I think the most emotional one is uh, when you're standing out there at the rocket launch site waiting for your project to go up into space and you say, oh, well, you know, all of us have put our lives into this thing and, and there it is sitting on top of hundreds of thousands of pounds of explosive material. And, and, and we sure hope it works. So it almost always does, almost always. Uh, and we're, of course, very fortunate that it did. Uh, then it goes up into space. And a few days later, uh, we get a phone call just about four o'clock in the morning, just after I got home, that... Um, by the way, one of the gyros has failed. Uh-oh, <laughs> better get back to, back to work, figure out what we get to do. So, of course, our engineers had designed the observatory with the possibility that this might occur. And so it was fine, mm. but we still had to think about it. So those are the sort of both most emotional moments. Uh, there was, of course, the day when my uh, colleagues said, here, John, here's the first interferogram from your instrument. And it was all signed with their signatures. Yes, it's working. That was pretty emotional. There were um, theories about why it was important to to verify to a certain accuracy, if my understanding is correct. Um, not too many people expected a big surprise about this, but but from other measurements. But uh, it must have been such a relief to see that some of the some of the ideas, the theories, could actually be testable. There aren't many. Um, well, increasingly, I, and as I spoke with science writer Ron Cowan about Einstein's century, the, the testing of Einstein's theories um, in the observable observation of the bending of starlight. I mean, beginning with that, and I suppose before that, but we were able to test these um, these very theoretical applications of quantum physics and mathematics, calculus. Um, it, it, it wasn't a big surprise, or, or was it, to, to, to get this confirmation? 
Well, to me, it was not a big surprise. I thought, I don't see how the universe could do anything else. On the other hand, uh, astronomers uh, are full of skeptics. Uh, there were a few people who really strongly believed that the universe is in a steady state and does not come from a big bang. Um, they were never even convinced by our evidence. So uh, it was pretty serious. Uh, on the other hand, uh, there are not too many people still trying to persuade us of an alternative theory. So what we are now really pleased with is that you can test the theory so well that you can derive many more numbers about the expanding universe. Uh, we made a second discovery, uh, not only the spectrum, but also the hot and cold spots in the microwave map. And these spots have statistics, that is to say how many big ones and how many little ones there are. And if you work it out in great uh, analysis depth, then you can say, well, I've got a model of the universe. It's got all kinds of things in it. It's got ordinary matter. It's got dark matter. It's dark, dark energy. Uh, and it's got a history. It's how, when did it all start? And you can say, well, if you really understand all these things you say you understand, you should be able to predict everything about these maps. Not the detailed speckles, but the uh, statistics of the speckles. So we have now been able to do that following the, the, the COPE project. Uh, there have been additional, even more precise measurements that have enabled us to get percent level measurements of these uh, ideas. Uh, how much dark matter is there? Uh, something that we didn't even really appreciate until lately. Right. So uh, because of these uh, little speckles on the map, you can uh, learn so much we never guessed would be possible. Uh, our theoretical colleagues had not really gotten around to calculating all these things until it was worth their while, until they could see that there were some spots to measure and calculate about. So now um, we're arguing about... Uh, the, not only the expansion, but the acceleration of the expansion, which we call uh, dark energy. And now we're even wondering if there's more than one kind of dark energy. So uh, all of these are completely amazing things that we never guessed would be possible when we proposed that satellite back in 1974. It's really amazing. It's, it seems like the more we know, it, the more it unlocks deeper questions about our understanding and, and allows us to make more complex uh, observations and measurements. You mentioned the the stress of the launch of Kobe um, on, I believe, a Delta rocket. I think it was one of the smaller rockets. Mm -hmm. um, it was supposed to be, as you tell it, it was supposed to be launched in the Challenger program from a West Coast launch in um, Vander, Vandenberg Air Force Base because it needed the polar orbit. What kind of impact did the Challenger accident in 1986 have on you and Kobe? I know I was um, in third grade, like so many people watching the, the Challenger launch and everyone was excited. And I know when I visited Johnson, Johnson Space Center and got to that memorial, it was just overwhelming emotionally for me to, to witness. And those are obviously, the, that's the human casualty of that. But there was also many people behind the scenes who lost um, their, you know, maybe a decade of work potentially on some instruments that were going up. What was, what was the impact of the Challenger on, on you and the program? Uh, well, for me, uh, you know, I wouldn't watch the launches. I thought they were all too dangerous. And I thought, we're just waiting for a disaster to occur. And so anyway, I, I know where I was. I was walking down the hall in the building where we were putting the Kobe satellite together. Mm. Uh, and so the news comes in. Well, I'm not surprised. I'm so sorry, but I'm not surprised. Mm. Uh, so now what do we do? Um, maybe we'll never get to fly our Kobe satellite. 
But uh, our managers and leaders on the project said, well, we'll find a way. And so they did. Uh, they found a way. They had to find a Delta rocket, which no longer existed. Uh, we weren't making them anymore, uh, but there were spare parts around, enough to assemble a rocket. And uh, we had to rebuild the satellite because it wouldn't fit anymore. Um, it was designed originally to go up on the space shuttle, and it had to lose half the mass uh, to to fit into the Delta. So anyway, um, they said they would do it, and they did do it. And I'm astonished at uh, what it took and uh, and at the uh, fact, of course, that it did work properly at the end. There, there's a quote in your in your book, the first, the very first light, something to the effect of, you know, Murphy's law is is you know not a big deal to engineers and scientists at NASA. It's it's like that's almost a friendly version. Like we, you expect things to go wrong. It's when you expect it's when things go wrong and you can't have a chance to fix them. That's the real issue. And I wonder how you feel about the James Webb being, um, and you can speak perhaps about uh, where it's going to be at Lagrange point two, what the significance of that point in, in, in space. Um, are you nervous about the web not being able to be serviced? Well, of course. Everyone that's working on the project knows that if something goes wrong, there's not very much we can do about it. Uh, on the other hand, um, we have made a design where um, there are redundant ways to do things. Uh, we should tell people what the James Webb Telescope is. Yes. Uh, it is the uh, planned successor for the Great Hubble Space Telescope. It is much larger, much more powerful, and sees uh, infrared light that the Hubble cannot pick up. So it is a very much more difficult project uh, because it's so large that it has to be folded up to fit into the top of the rocket. So after we launch, uh, we wait a little while, and then we push the buttons, uh, send the commands, that is to say, uh, to say, uh, please unfold yourself in space. And so this is a multi-step process. Um, it's not quite like it is landing on Mars, where it's completely hopeless to send a command because you can't even get there. Um, in our case, we will be watching every step and say, well, did that work? If it doesn't work, we'll try the other way. So um, we have our plans. Uh, but the most important thing to do is to uh, make sure that you've tested it thoroughly so that no matter what happens, it'll be fine. Um, that everything that could go wrong has been checked. So we put it through a very rigorous environmental test. We shake the daylights out of it as it will be shaken when it flies. We put uh, very loud noises next to it as it will be when it flies. Uh, the parts that would be cold in outer space, we've already tested them very cold in a uh, vacuum tank in Texas. So everything that we can do to test it the way that it will be in space, we do that. And then um, you still, at the end, we say, now I've got to fold up my parachute the way that I know how to do it and get it right. Right. Uh, so there's always that nervous business about the end. Yeah. Uh, but at least the principle and the design seem to be sound. And rehearsal is a big piece of it. We'll touch on that in a moment. But as far as the performance art of this that you've you've sp spoken about, but uh, maybe you can say a little bit more about how the James Webb Space Telescope compares to Hubble, how it is different. You mentioned it is larger. How else is it different? What can we expect? The Hubble gave us these stunningly beautiful uh, images of galaxies far away and insights about our place in the universe. It was uh, looking back in time, of course, also uh, in a wide wide field. I understand it. What what, what is the difference? Well, uh, the main difference is it's bigger, more powerful, and does infrared. So uh, it sees things the Hubble cannot see at all. 
So, you know, um, things just look different in the infrared camera. When you go around and somebody shows you yourself in an infrared camera, oh, I don't know. I didn't know I looked like that. Uh, so we expect surprises uh, when we do the same thing for uh, things in space. Um, just to say, what are those differences? Well, uh, number one, the expanding universe stretches out the light of the distant galaxies so that what starts out as short wavelengths ends up at long wavelengths, which is to say infrared. Uh, so we need the infrared capability to see the light of those most distant galaxies. Second thing infrared does for you is it goes around dust grains instead of bouncing off them. So you can see through those beautiful glowing clouds of gas and dust that people love to look at and see inside. So we know stars are being born today inside those beautiful clouds. And astronomers say, I wish I could see in. Uh, the infrared capability lets you see in. The third thing um, is uh, some things are not warm enough to emit light the way that the sun does, uh, but they are warm enough to emit infrared. So to give you some sense of, of this, if you were uh, one square centimeter uh, the size of a bumblebee hovering out there uh, in deep space uh, about the distance of the moon away from Earth, we'd be able to see you um, very well, uh, two ways, actually, the sunlight you would reflect and the heat you would radiate. So um, something that's this powerful um, and gets such a sharp image is surely going to give us a surprise. We just don't know what it's going to be. Right. What, 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 do you, what would you like to be surprised about when, if you, when you get some of these re uh, measurements and observations back from the James Webb? Ah, well, goodness. Uh, there are a couple of kinds of surprises I kind of expect. One is that um, the history of the early universe is complicated. And I think that it's not impossible that we will discover some category of object that came and went. That um, They were formed early on. They've all burnt out or disappeared by now, so we can't find any now. So I think the telescope might find that. And there's beginning to be a little evidence that's in the news occasionally about how the universe is brighter than people thought. And the reason for that is unknown. So that's one thing. So uh, maybe we'll see them. I uh, certainly hope so. Uh, the other thing where I think we could get big surprises is in the subject of planets. Uh, we know that most stars have planets, and uh, we are hoping to learn a lot more about those planets with the Webb telescope. Um, there are not very many that are big enough and bright enough and far enough away from their stars that you can actually see them as a little dot. Uh, but there are a lot where we know that this planet will goes in front of the star and blocks some starlight for a while, and we can analyze the light that is being blocked and do a subtraction and say, well, before and after, what's the difference? Uh, and we say, that's the planet. Uh, let's get the chemistry of the atmosphere of that planet. So we're working on that. Now we have a plan of about 30 different planets we know we're going to look at this way, and uh, some small, some med medium, some large. Uh, none of them are likely to be very much like Earth. Uh, but, of course, a great hope that astronomers have is one of these days we'll say, I found it. There's a planet over there. It's a lot like Earth. Uh, not only the right size and temperature, but maybe it has water and air and oxygen, which, of course, comes from life here. So we would sure like to know if there's another place like Earth out there. Personally, I think there are, uh, but we haven't found them. It would be so exciting, obviously, to, to begin yeah. to get these uh, bits of information about other other planets and life 
Um, there's so much we can learn, so much we may not even know that we can learn that we will we'll stumble onto. Um, you, you mentioned the, the web, you've spoken about the, the web project being a performance art. Obviously, the launch, just, just getting the launch right is one thing, but you mentioned the unfolding, the intricate sort of, uh, there's an origami sequence sort of, mm-hmm. uh, of, of this shield. Um, why, maybe you can say more about the performance art aspect. Please take the time now to subscribe to The Soul of Life wherever you're listening. Give it a thumbs up or write a positive review. That's the best way to make sure you don't miss out on these amazing episodes planned for season two. Well, a performance art is one in which the actually doing of it is part of the process. So you can say, um, I have calculated, I measured, I designed, and yet still when you come to the real thing, you have to get it right. And so... Um, there is uh, people sitting around in the control room uh, figuring out, is it doing the right thing and deciding what to do about that. So that's the kind of uh, real-time art process where you have to say, I see it, it's okay, or it's not okay. If it's not okay, what are we going to do? And uh, so we're doing rehearsals of that already. We've had well over a dozen rehearsals. And by the time we get to launch, I think there will be about 30 of them. So how do you do a rehearsal with a piece of hardware that's somewhere else? Well, we have a digital twin. We have a simulation of the entire process uh, in a computer. And so we practice and rehearse with a digital twin. A friend of mine uh, who works at NASA, Goddard, had had the, the privilege of being one of those people on the ground, one of the engineers who helped Mike Massimino when he was doing a repair of the Hubble and needing to get I think um, uh, some sort of wrench that they didn't have, you know, and, and to get some bolt open or something. And so that that aspect of this, this is a real life, uh, live sort of exercise that it's as much as science is about, and especially uh, astrophysics is a very precise science. There's this very human aspect to it. Um, people make mistakes. We make mistakes. We learn. We try to get get things right. Um, you mentioned, um, well, the, the James Webb is going to be at this very distant place, about a million miles away. Is that right? Why is it? Why does it have to be there? Well, it's an interesting place for us. It's the place that's a boundary between orbiting the Earth and orbiting the Sun. So we put it out there so that it moves with the Earth around the Sun once a year. So um, when you're looking from the telescope, you see the Earth, the Sun, the Moon are all in one place in the sky. That means you can put it up an umbrella. You can protect yourself from all those things uh, with a one-sided umbrella. And we need that so that the telescope itself can be cold. Uh, Why do you need a telescope to be cold? We want to pick up infrared light. And the infrared light comes uh, from everything that's warm. So we don't want the telescope to be brighter than the sky. Mm. So it's got to be cold. Makes sense. And is it true that there's other other telescopes that are working sort of in concert that that the the legacy of all these including kobe i mean you know going back to the observational data of all sorts of telescopes help with maybe perhaps where you might point the james webb mm-hmm. absolutely uh, we already have a pretty long list of places we know we're going to point and right now we're running a competition to choose another uh, years worth of observations. We we know where interesting things have been found before, um, including one uh, where the Hubble Space Telescope team decided to take a risk. They said, we're going to point the telescope where we don't think there's anything there that we know of. 
And that was what became the Hubble Deep Field, one of our most beautiful images we've ever seen, uh, because what actually was there were about two stars and many thousands of galaxies. And they were all different shapes and flavors and colors of galaxies uh, with distances going from nearby to really far away and far back in time. And that was the picture that said, oh, astronomers, uh, we're thrilled with this telescope. But by the way, it can't see the first stars in the first galaxies growing. So please build us another bigger, more powerful telescope that can pick up infrared. So that's where the Webb telescope came from. Are there other telescopes planned in succession that are even bigger or doing planning to do different things? I mean, the Webb start, when did the James Webb project begin? Well, the Webb telescope actually got started in 1995 as people were writing a little book that said, please build us this new telescope. Um, we are currently building the, the uh, Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope, which is smaller but uh, much uh, wider in a sense. Uh, it's like the Hubble Space Telescope in size, but it takes 100 times as much bite of the sky at one time. So this is really powerful for looking for uh, effects of dark matter and dark energy and also for patrolling around and looking for the really unusual, very most interesting things that could be out there. So they're going to survey a large part of the sky with this telescope, uh, something that the Hubble could never do. Do we know, Dr. Mather, when, uh, when the launch is going to be sometime in 2021? We are planning the Webb telescope to be launched in October of 2021. Um, which means we have, as as of we're doing this interview, about nine months worth of work left and a couple of months of schedule extra just in case, which we almost always will use. So October 2021 is the plan. Will you be going to French Guiana to see the launch? I probably will not. Um, people that really need to be there uh, will be there. Uh, I expect to be here at home where uh, right away after launch, we will have some very exciting things to do. Uh, in particular, uh, within a half a day, we have to fire the rocket engines uh, one more time to make sure that we're aiming for the right spot way out there uh, to get to this special Lagrange point orbit that we're going for. Uh, I'm a big fan of of space history in, in, in this country, uh, the Apollo program, the 10 the year sort of blitz that it took all hands on deck to, to really to, to get to the moon and to make this you know, nearly impossible thing possible. Um, you know, that project, the Apollo mission, took place during a time of great turmoil politically in our country where there's a lot of events going on. And, and it's always fascinating to me that, that science is this sort of universal language. Uh, mathematics is a universal language. It can bring us together and we can focus on things that um, we all need to, uh, as humans. By the way, we should mention that James Webb, who we've named the telescope for, was the uh, head of NASA during the time we prepared the Apollo for launch. So uh, we named a telescope for an administrator. The first time we ever did that, and I think uh, he's certainly earned the earned the honor. Not only did he get us to the moon, uh, but he also made sure that we did some science. He said, "Mr. Kennedy, we want to do some science. Can I start up some science labs around the country?" And so we did, and he made sure we got started with uh, probes to Mars and going out to Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. So under his leadership, we got really going with science as well as the human program. And so I'm thrilled that we were able to name a telescope for him. It, it, it makes me think, Dr. Mather, how, how um, vast the teamwork is that, that when, when somebody gets an award or somebody gets recognized in science, there's always, or you know, astronauts are always known for this being sort of the public face 
of of space flight but there's a team of engineers behind it and these these namings it seems to be mm-hmm. one one of the ways to build a legacy i know i grew up in a suburb of worcester massachusetts and so when we would go to the auburn mall there's a, a very small plaque where goddard f- apparently uh, launched his his rockets and uh, and you know forever mm-hmm. forever in history now um what is it like to to look back in time i want to shift gears if we can mm-hmm. a moment here what is it like to look back in time when when some people on the outside may maybe speculate about you know what is what was before the big bang are we going to be able to see before the big bang and these type of questions how has that affected you and your your career and you know finding meaning in the work here well to tell the truth um i don't spend much time speculating about those answers uh, i think I'm going to work as hard as I can to get data. So we might have some evidence to base the the tests on. So right now we certainly have the idea that maybe the universe uh, has bounced, that maybe there was something, uh, a prior universe that collapsed into something that resembles our Big Bang and then bounced out again. So I don't know how we would know, but it's certainly a popular alternative to the uh, idea that uh, there was only one. Uh, there are other versions where you say, oh, well, maybe there are many, many universes uh, because our theoretical calculations uh, give us uh, quantum mechanical descriptions that would say, yeah, it would. Uh, so uh, yet at the moment, uh, I have not seen any convincing idea that said we would ever know. Uh, what would the evidence be in our universe of any either bounce or uh, evidence of a um, another universe somewhere else? So I think we're sort of stuck in the one that we have. But uh, once in a while, we get lucky and our mathematics really tells us something convincing. Uh, Dirac, back in the 20s, said, here's my little equation for electrons. And you know what? There's something with a negative energy in here. Maybe it's a positron, an anti-electron. And sure enough, it was. Uh, So once in a while, you get lucky and your theory works out and is a stunning success. Uh, We like to forget all the other ones. So we can make a lot of wrong theories and uh, hope to forget them. There's there's still a lot of work to be done, it sounds like you're saying. I mean, there's always work to be done. I, I wonder what you would say to to a young person starting off um, in high school or, or primary school who has an interest in science, has an interest in space. Um, what are the <laughs> things that you would say to yourself uh, as a young person if, if you could go back in time to to uh, to to sort of give guidance and direction to field of study. Oh, oh my goodness. Well, everyone's history is different. In my case, I was uh, very isolated as a child and I had a lot of time on my hands. And so uh, I spent it uh, reading about science and fooling around with hammers and saws and drills and nails and uh, uh, crystal radio and a one tube radio and uh, lenses and mirrors and things to make telescopes. So, um, I just loved the exploration of it. I was interested a little bit in geology. In my area of northern New Jersey, uh, you could walk around this dirt road and pick up fossils. Um, So I was interested in a lot of things that I didn't follow up. Um, But anyway, I think uh, the essence of being a scientist is to be curious. And uh, I think if you're a kid, you're curious. And after a while, you say, maybe I shouldn't be so curious anymore. I got to get a job and and I got to do this and that. But uh, if you are curious enough, you may be able to say, let me get paid for being curious. Long time ago, you couldn't get paid for that. Um, but now we can because the world recognizes the value of what scientists do. These days, for instance, we have a brand new vaccine. 
which was made by a technique that could not have been done 10 years ago. And we had it uh, in, uh, in months instead of many years. So science gave us a miracle. And we really needed it this time. You couldn't have said it better. We really needed it. And and, and there's there's really human um, down to earth, so to speak, um, effects of, of this science that you're doing in the space program. Uh, sometimes people may wonder about that. People uh, wondered about the, the, the man, so-called manned space flight program. What, is it really important to send people into space? Um, do, do you see a strong connection to applied human problems where there is suffering um, in the world uh, in ad- addressing certain things on Earth? Mm, good question. Well, of course, a lot of our problems are caused by people. Um, that's sort of basic. Um, but uh, many of our problems could be solved with engineering and science. So you say, well, jeepers, it's getting warmer here, isn't it? We better do something about it. Uh, well, so far, it has not worked to tell people not to do what they want to do. So um, let's see if there's an engineering path. So, so far, there's nothing that you can say, well, do this and it will all be fine. Uh, But every day, there's yet another step in the right direction. For instance, uh, solar power is cheaper than coal power and oil power and gas power in most places now. Um, I call it the free nuclear reactor in space. Put out your hands and pick up energy. So um, we are working on that. What we need to add to it that we don't really have enough of yet is better batteries. So uh, we have electricity when it's dark. Um, So work is happening every day on that. So you can see it. There's tremendously rapid progress in that area. So um, there's a lot of that that we can do and I think are doing. Um, So, you know, you don't have to convince people to do something that's cheaper. Right. And if you can make something that's cheaper and better, then you win. You remind me uh, about SpaceX and and the privatization of space. Um, I'm curious, you know, you've, you've been around in the space program at, in, in NASA for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what's changed? I mean, what's changed? I mean, this is a big question of however you want to take this, but uh, obviously most recently uh, having SpaceX um, in some of these recent launches with, with humans, but um, you know, the, the exit of the shuttle program. Um, Yeah, well, uh, big changes certainly are occurring. Um, Once in a while, you see, well, this situation is unstable. Uh, It was unstable to have a space shuttle program as the only way to get people into space because there clearly was another way. Uh, The old-fashioned expendable rockets uh, actually were pretty reliable, and they turn out to be pretty safe if you do it well. So we've been doing it that way ever since the the, um, shuttles were ended. Um, how hard is it to get people to pay attention to a space launch? <laughs> oh, golly, um, it's hard for me to tell. Um, we uh, certainly do not have the kind of uh, excitement that you had when uh, lives were being uh, endangered at every launch. Uh, now we have that again because we have SpaceX launching from uh, American soil. So uh, it's still kind of scary to me every time that happens. And I think it will always be kind of scary. Um, when we get to uh, you don't have a, a failure except every 10,000 or 100,000 launches, then people will say, oh, I'm going too. Uh, right now, um, you have to be brave and have your paperwork in order to say I'm going to go into space. So um, I'm very glad that some people are able and willing to do that and still function as brilliant uh, uh, pilots and uh, scientists and engineers in space. So 
we're beginning to learn how to do that. If, if somebody handed you a ticket, Dr. Mather, whether it's a Virgin Galactic or a Jeff Bezos uh, uh, to, to get on a, a rocket and go to space, would you do it? Uh, probably not. I'm a softy, you know. <clears throat> I'm not in shape. I can't uh, probably withstand the uh, launch environment. And I have no idea if I can withstand zero gravity. Uh, a lot of people can't. So we give you a test. We send you up on the uh, zero-gravity airplane for a while and see if you start to throw up. And a lot of people do. Being in space uh, is tough on the body. It definitely is. Very hard on the body. Um, you know, finally, I guess, um, wondering how, how international, how difficult it is not just to, to pull off a coordinated effort with scientists uh, who have their own, you know, um, careers at stake sometimes, uh, egos, there's politics, external pressures, uh, criticism from the media, that sort of thing. But then, uh, like the James Webb is a, a international collaboration between the Canadian Space Agency, the European Space Agency, the United States. How is it possible to pull this off without uh, getting at each other <laughs> behind the scenes? Well, I don't know that it's possible. Um, I think that we don't see all of the arguments that happen behind the scenes. Uh, we know um, the Webb Telescope got a lot of support from astronomers. Um, when uh, Dan Golden announced to the astronomers in, I think, January of 96 that we were going to do this project, he got a standing ovation. Okay, we got approval. Um, then, of course, uh, he said it was going to cost a lot less than it did. So then we got disapproval. Um, but we did negotiate uh, international partnership along the way. And uh, after we have one of those, then it makes it a little harder for people to pull out the plug and say, uh, we're not going after all. Uh, so uh, fortunately, we are able to do what we said we would do, uh, but the price has been a lot higher than people thought it would be. Uh, on the way, we have solved a vast number of engineering challenges, and we intentionally designed something that would be hard so that we would have uh, something to do next time. Uh, we have pioneered uh, new technology that will be the basis for next generations of space telescopes. Uh, you, you mentioned in your writing how important it is, um, you know, your family, your wife, um, as as far as supporting you. I think sometimes we think of science happening in a vacuum and when we, we, we read histories of discoveries or great scientific advancements. We don't always hear the personal story. Um, what What are the things that keep you going? Of course, that's one of my interests in psychology. How do you stay whole as a person? How do you stay interested, energized in your work? Uh, good question. Uh, well, um, I don't actually have any question in my mind about what I'm up to. I am here to contribute my bit to this wonderful project and uh, hopeful that uh, it's meaningful to the, everyone else. Um, I am not getting off this horse at this point. I want to make sure that everything that I know is available to everyone who needs it. Uh, I've been on the project since 95, so I'm the only one who's been here since that moment. So uh, I hope that my knowledge is not really needed, but it might be. So I am also thrilled to see that we're about to have it ready for people, that uh, we have just received over a thousand proposals for how to use the telescope. Um, and we're going to go through the process of choosing the most interesting ones. And um, well, just I'm, I'm thrilled to see the, what we, uh, the nation and the international partners are able to put forth for the benefit of science and the world. It's really wonderful. And, and it's, it's, um, it's, it's like, it's wonderful to hear the humility even, you know, about this, uh, that you bring to this, um, this very challenging work. Um, 
anything else that you want to share? Anything you'd want my listeners to look into more um, where they can hear you speak or uh, other projects you're working on that you want to get out there? Uh, Astronomers are right in the middle of writing a new book about what they think their top priorities are for the next decade. So in sometime in the spring, this book should come out from the National Academy of Sciences. That'll be exciting. Mm. We have four enormous observatories being proposed uh, that do different things. And it'll be really exciting to see what astronomers want to want to have the most. Uh, some of them would be extending the web telescope science. Some of them will be looking especially for little planets way out there like Earth, if maybe. Uh, Some of them will be extending the science of infrared into the longer wavelength infrared, things that are colder way out there. And there's one that's looking for x-rays from uh, really, really hot things out there. So uh, maybe we'll get to do them sometime, depending on uh, whether we can convince people that this is the most coolest thing to do. Sounds cool to me. I mean, your your work is inspirational, and and I'm I'm so glad that you spent some time here with me today. Thank you, Dr. John Mather, the senior astrophysicist at the Observational Cosmology Laboratory and NASA Goddard Flight Space Center. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, Keith. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Soul of Life. This is Keith Miller. Oh, and don't forget, please leave a thumbs up or a like for this episode wherever you're listening so that others like you may find the soul of life. I mean, really, it's not every day you get to share the soul of life with someone. Okay, so... You can post a comment or question on souloflifeshow.com. I'd love to hear from you. And please subscribe now to get the next episode. I look forward to sharing more of my soul of life with you. I like it and it's not harsh to my eardrum. All right, I will go.